Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So we've spent a number of weeks speaking about Satan. You're probably thinking, okay, let's move on from Satan. I get it. Um, this is really the last week until we talk a little bit differently when we talk about the armor of God and the shield of faith warding off the flaming arrows, the flaming darts of the enemy. But I wanted to touch on something that I think coincides with our understanding of Satan, specifically when it comes to his domain, his territory. Because let's go back and remember that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the god of this world. He has uh, blinded the minds of unbelievers. And we can't ever forget that that is at the core, his rule, his reign. That looks very different as we've gone through many different stages of what that looks like, specifically when it comes to Satan's territory and his power. Last week, I spoke from Daniel chapter 10 and spoke about the context of how we see in Daniel 10 clearly um, this idea of territorial spirits. I'm not going to spend as much in that because I, I wanted to share a little bit more, but just because of time's sake, don't really have the time to even go further into the exegesis of that text. But tomorrow I'll be sending an email. It's um, to a blog post that I, I wrote that goes a little bit more in detail about this. If you have any questions or if you want to talk about it during the question and answer today. So if you're interested, there's a link to that and you can go tomorrow. But just for time's sake, we're not going to really go into further detail of Daniel chapter 10. But I wanted to talk about a, a couple of areas on the big scale that I do think Satan has certain reign and power that we're seeing quite often today. The first one is when it comes to institutions and systems. And I know that's very much the in thing, the in topic today. It's truly the hot topic. Is there a systemic problem? in our world's institutions. And those institutions vary in many different ways from government to the church, to education, to media, to technology and business. Really, it's the question of in all the different areas that we human beings operate and consider, does Satan and this spiritual realm have an impact in those areas? Before we dismiss the idea that no, Satan doesn't have control or there's no such thing as that, I want us to remember that the fall that is Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, and according to Paul in Romans 5, we sin in Adam, that means that that sin is so pervasive 
that it impacts every single aspect of a human being. That image bearers of God who are created as good, very good, but because of sin, that image has been perverted, it has been corrupted, it is decaying. And so that decay is not just on the individual. Recognize that that sin is all pervasive. Because if you have an individual who is creating from sin and you have a, a group and a community, then that too is also tainted by sin. It doesn't mean that all government, marriage, um, business, education, all of it is terrible all the time and evil all the time because there's something called God's natural revelation, his His common grace that is under all these things that allows us to operate without anarchy and chaos all the time. Or if God were to remove his hand of grace over our world, we wouldn't be able to survive in this world. So I am not saying, please do not get me wrong, to think that all systems at in every way, there's no way to function because of sin. That's God's grace. But it's also something to remember that we are dealing with not only a sinful person, such as myself, but a sinful institution, sinful bodies, sinful systems. And so therefore, we should never be surprised when those systems go astray, run amok. When it's comprised of sinners who create structures that follow sinful patterns and have built-in mechanisms to serve the self because, again, at the core, that's what sin is. We serve the self apart from God. And we live in an anti-God world with an anti-God philosophy. So, of course, that philosophy is going to impact all the areas that we live. Remember also that Paul has told us, and I, we read this passage over and over again, because we know that this struggle is not against flesh and blood. I mean, we have to really ask ourselves, do I take Paul at his word? Because if the struggle is only against flesh and blood, then, you know, then we would say there's no such thing as these spiritual forces and as Paul describes. But if it's more than flesh and blood, if it's more than our intellect, our education, our business prowess, our money, our experience, if all of those things impact us more uh, because of spiritual forces, then we should recognize that, wow, there can be problems really across the board. And we know this experientially as well, but theologically, through scripture, we realize this to be true. There's a biblical theologian by the name of Vern Poitras. He's conservative. He is not someone you would think of as, oh, that guy's a charismatic guy. He was at Westminster. And he says this, it should also be noted that demonic activity does not exclusively follow geographical lines, but institutional and social lines as well. The demonized activity of the beast runs in coherent form throughout the Roman Empire in the form of idolized imperial power. 
The demonized activity of the prostitute runs in coherent form through the pagan world, in the form of prostitution that is socially accepted, and in the form of economic prosperity enjoyed through participation in city life, at the heart of which is pagan idolatrous culture. Again, this theologian is not a charismatic by the classical theological definition. And what he's saying is that there is a spiritual realm that is infiltrating all arenas of life. Why? Because we're dealing with sinful people. Paul quotes Romans 14 and Romans 3, 10 through 12. He says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, Paul doesn't leave us any room to wriggle out of responsibility. This means anything and everything that humanity has created has serious biases, problems, and issues. And we see this beginning in Genesis chapter 4. So we go back to Genesis because it really is the prototype and the archetype of the world that we live in. Genesis 4 is thought to be the first time that government was created by human beings. After Cain sins by killing Abel, he builds a city. And one of his descendants, his name is Lamech, he essentially becomes the first totalitarian dictator. He says, according to Genesis 4, 23 to 24, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And that word seven is a very specific, important number in the Bible. It means sort of this infinite idea, meaning if Cain can go about in his city, killing and revenging himself seven times, then Lamech, who's now the ruler of his world, can just go out and murder people without any limit, without and be tyrannical, without any sense of saying, I need to stop. He is really the prototype, archetype, totalitarian dictator of our world. And since Lamech, how many have followed his path? So, we know that when government first came into our world, while it is God's grace that we have government, we also know there are people who usurp government and who act self-centeredly in utilizing that government to bring about tyrannical results against societies. We also know that when there is a personal rejection of God, and a dependence on him, and that flows into a communal governmental state, there is a broad rejection of God. Just track world history alongside biblical history, which is the same thing, essentially, biblical redemptive history, and you see this thread that God brings about government, and he shows these prototypes of Israel but all these nations around it and Israel continue to rebel against God. And because of that, there will never be the perfect government, the government that rules rightly until 
the righteous king reigns on the earth forever and ever until Jesus Christ returns and establishes the perfect government, which is a divine monarchy. That's the only government that will ever be in this world that will rule perfectly and rightly and justly. I totally agree with Tim Keller when he writes, sinful actions not only shape us, but the people around us. And when we sin, we affect those around us, which reproduces sinful patterns, even if more subtle over generations. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, God punishes sin down the generations because usually later generations participate in one form or another in the same sin. Whenever you read in the Old Testament and God says, I will punish to the third and fourth generation, you might be taken aback by that and think, how could God do that? That's so unjust. But God knows those third and fourth generations. He knows their hearts. He knows what's going to happen. And he says, I will punish them, not just because they are establishing a pattern of sin based on an ancestor from a long time ago, but because they're continuing in that pattern. I want to address then, in light of that, so that's my little preface to address a few things when it comes to today's culture, specifically in America and all around the world. A few observations. First, all people are guilty of tribalism and racism. That's what happens when human beings fall short of the glory of God. We judge others with planks in our own eye, and we pull out the specks in others. As long as there is, are human beings, there will be racism, tribalism, regionalism, and chauvinism. It doesn't matter which country, what color of skin, what region you're from, there will be those things. We should not be surprised by the evils of our culture, our society, our nation, and yes, of our world. Lest we think this is a, a black and white problem, all we need to do is go back to world history and see that this type of racism and chauvinism has been in every culture at all time. Yes, we have the, the Nazis and their um, uplifting and their superiority of Aryanism. But it wasn't just the Nazis. There's Imperial Japan and the Shinto cult. They're not white Aryans. We also have the pseudo-Christian crusaders that were marching in to destroy the infidel Islamic Muslims. We have Muslim Islamic fundamentalism of today trying to destroy others. Within the country of Rwanda, there were the Hutus and the Tutsis, two tribes committed to wiping one another out, both black. Vadi Bakum tells a story of his, his family has moved to Zambia. And when they go and, and if you don't know anything about Vadi Bakum, he's black. He's African American. But they moved to Zambia and he put his kids into Zambian schools and they're made fun of. Not because of the color of their skin, but because of their way they speak the language. Their, the sound of their voice. Every country, regardless of the ethnics, ethnicity or race, if someone lives in the north and someone lives in the south, but they look exactly the same, if you speak a little different, 
you're isolated. You're pointed out as someone lesser. If you dress a certain way, maybe if your hair color is just a little bit of a different tint, as long as there are sinful people, there will be a majority imposing its standards on the will of the minority. That is foundational to humanity because that's what sin does. Because we have rejected the idea that we are all created in God's image. Because of that, and that alone, we treat one another with dignity and respect, regardless of what they look like, where they're from, what they sound like, what they eat, what color their hair is, what shape their face is, how tall or short they are. But we've, we move away from that idea because we've bought into the enemy's schemes, which is do not think about what God has done. Think about yourself. And with the self comes, how can I get the most power to be able to live my life and impose my will on others? So first, remember, all people are guilty of tribalism and racism. Second is this. The legacy of the sin of slavery still impacts America today. Now, I say this historically, but I also say it from a biblical perspective when it comes to sin. All sin has consequences. Societal sin has consequences. We see this in the Old Testament. That whatever happens in society, which is why God always says, Israel, do not intermarry with your neighboring peoples. And it had nothing to do with race. It was all about God's understanding that once they intermarried with the neighboring peoples who were worshiping all sorts of God, gods, he knew once he, they did that, pretty much most of them, the vast, vast, vast majority would turn away from God. So it was not about ethnicity, but about a worship of God. And that sin has influence. It impacts so we must not be surprised that slavery in the West, in Europe, in America, in different parts of the world, because slavery has been around the world for a long time in many countries. But that sin impacts all countries. And the sin of slavery, chattel slavery in America has impacted our world. And we're still facing that impact. You know, when Abraham, there was a famine in the land. And Abraham decided to move to Egypt. Egypt, if you know anything about biblical history in the Old Testament, is that one place that is absolutely opposed to God. And God always says, don't go to Egypt. But Abraham did that. And you know who Abraham ended up finding and bringing, not marrying, but a concubine. Her name was Hagar. Hagar brought her back. And then they had a son named Ishmael. And Ishmael and Isaac, Abraham's other son, would be forever enemies. Ishmael's descendants are the Arab Muslim peoples of today. And that one real impact of a, of a sense of saying, God, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. You're going to feed me during this famine. I'm going to go and run away. Still, we are facing the challenges of that today in our world. So that was thousands of years ago. We're talking a couple of hundred years ago when it comes to slavery. So that sin has impacted our world. Now, I want us to consider this. First, this is not a black and white problem. 
This is a problem for all of us, regardless of your ethnicity. And may I say this, that when we look at the Old Testament, we see that there is a representative understanding of our, as God's people, of taking on the responsibility even of the sin of others, regardless of whether I've been directly impacted by this. Why do I say this? Moses did that. You know, Moses didn't turn away from the Lord, but how many times did he intercede as one who was representing the people of Israel before a holy God? God would say, I'm going to destroy these people. Right after the golden calf in Exodus 32, God says, you know what? I'm going to destroy these people. I'm going to make you into a great nation, Moses. And Moses says, Lord, do not do that. I do not want to be, I, I do not want to go down that road. I am these people. Have mercy. Show yourself to be merciful. He pled to God for forgiveness, even though he himself didn't participate in the golden calf. You know, Daniel does the same thing. In Daniel 9, he repents for the sins of his forefathers in Israel, despite the fact that we know that Daniel did not commit idolatry. That we are certain of. And yet he's repenting on behalf of Israel. How important of a model and a stance this is for us as God's people. Rather than separating ourselves from so-called sinners, we love and intercede. We take on the responsibility and we repent. And we come to see the sorrow and pain that others are experiences as a people of God. We are mediating. It's very much in line with everything that Jesus is all about, what the gospel is all about, rather than just saying, this is not my problem, but instead saying, how can I be a part of what God is doing to reconcile and to understand the brokenness of a real sin that has impacted our world? We must rid ourselves of our own prejudices and biases as God's people. And we need to strive to see those biases in our own heart. And we need to be willing to change. It's so easy to be biased against others based solely on some minuscule, unimportant distinction, such as skin color, accent, food choices, shape of face, um, where a person lives, what country they're from. But God doesn't see the world that way. Then why in the world do we? You could see how that is embedded, again, not in one race or another, but all. We're all guilty of this. We must see that we are in every way, every way a part of this society, this structure. It is impacted by sin. No matter what race we are, we are all apt to judge wrongly in this way. And the only way we can experience the beginnings of reconciliation is to understand humbly that we have much to learn from others. We have much to give, much to care for to others who are different, who don't fit our norms, the way that we think about the world. Thirdly, and this is very important. As much as I do believe that systems are broken, 
due to sin, that tribalism and racism is a part of every culture, that slavery is in very much impacting our world, and it's something that we must be willing to take responsibility for and take on. The answer, though, is not in earthly power, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today's movements, regardless of position or political party, it's all about power, the power of our world, the power of government. And there's this constant pendulum shift of this power in both directions, even in our world, as slavery and all of its future evils, such as the Jim Crow laws of systemic racism, were all about power, so too is today's anarchist anti-government protests about power. It's all about power. Let me quote again Tim Keller, because I do believe he is spot on about this. And if all people with power who, quote, call the shots socially, culturally, economically, and control public discourse, inevitably use it for domination, then if any revolutionaries were able to replace the oppressors at the top of the society, why would they not become people that should be subsequently be rebelled against and replaced themselves? What would make them different? The postmodern account of justice has no good answers for these questions. You cannot insist that all mor uh, morality is culturally constructed and relative and then claim that your moral claims are not. This is not a flaw that only Christians see. And this may therefore be a fatal flaw for the entire theory, meaning that the greatest problem we see today is not going to be solved by a replacement of those institutions, those political parties, those governments. That when we try to obtain equity and justice through the world's power, we're just going to replace that with another unjust system. And that's going to utilize that same power to create another unjust system. And it becomes this cycle of abuse, of a rejection of God, of more racism, of more tribalism, of more corruption. Lord Acton wisely noted, absolute power corrupts absolutely. What I'm saying is that Satan is very cunning. He knows the way to attack us is to divide us. The way to attack the church. I and mean, there's so much right now going on in the church. If I were to have sent out a certain type of survey, forget about the opening worship survey. If I were to say, tell me your position on your political party. What do you think about the 2020 election? Do you think that we should, if I were to uh, have arranged the, the questions about COVID in certain ways, whether you are someone who believes this strongly about this or this, put that out there and I guarantee you that this whole church would have blown up because we tend to view things solely on the basis of power. Power from a world's perspective. Whoever has that power has control. Whoever has that control changes the world. But that's exactly Satan's scheme. It's to see the world through flesh and blood. 
not through spiritual eyes. If the church gets caught up in saying, let's put all of our resources to get this person elected, regardless of who that is. Let's put all of our resources to change over this board of education or to be able to get this mayor or to be able to do anything through the world's power. Everything will crumble. Satan has won. Strongholds get stronger. As long as there are human beings, there will always be attempts to make the world better. And you will hear that phrase through all sorts of ways, all sorts of means. If you elect the right person, if you have the right environmental policy, if you have the right policy, foreign policy, economic policy, then the world is going to be better. But all of that on its own will never make the world better. How in the world can that happen when almost, you know, if you look at world history, all those millennia have always had different promises that have fallen by the wayside. No, there's a spiritual darkness according to Paul in Rome, um, Ephesians 6. And that spiritual darkness has led to oppression, prejudice, bigotry, racism, delusion, deception, and tyranny. And no government is ever going to solve those problems. Let me speak then not just about systems, but about nations. Consider all of the totalitarian states of our history as a world. I'm not even going to name all of them because there are so many. But Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, Rome's emperors such as Nero, Diocletian, Nazi Germany, Stalinist USSR, Kim Il-sung's North Korea, Idi Amin's Uganda, Apartheid South Africa. The, the list in history is so vast. You see, the, the type of Lamech and Cain coming from Genesis 4 has continued. The thread continues, and there will be more up and coming. Daniel 10, and the Bible describes Satan as the ruler of this world. Paul says this struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and authorities. It leads us to conclude that Satan does use rulers and nations to unleash his control and power. And territorial spirits and regions and nations control lands and areas. We're going to play for you one more video from George. I think he has a lot of wisdom on this. And I think I wanted to um, ask that you watch, listen, because I think he has some insights in this as well. In Revelation 12, we clearly see this spiritual battle that's happening and the territorial forces of the dragon and Michael and, and Daniel, we read about Michael saying, um, he spoke to Daniel and he said, you prayed and you fasted for 21 days and I had to come through to reach you. We know it's happening. We know we might be living for a short while in a culture that don't understand it because we've been so absorbed by the materialistic thing. But um, as children of the light, we're very aware of that. In Ancient World, we very specifically target communities that are the most vulnerable communities. We call it the killing fields of Satan. We must understand this is a warfare, and warfare is to kill. And Satan is out to kill 
anything that's created in the image of God. And he will do it through deception, through fear, through intimidation, through violence, and through luring us into that there's nothing wrong. He's targeting your family as much as he's targeting the orphans in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And we've got to understand that we must stand and we must understand the strong man. We must understand the spirit that is at work from family level right into regional and country level. I wish we had so much time to talk about South Africa in 1994 when the whole world was waiting for this bomb to explode. It was the perfect storm. And there is an incredible story how a few men of God diffused it by battling against the spiritual forces and meeting with key people and diffusing that influence. But then we looked at what happened in Rwanda where 800,000 people got killed in over 30 days. Friends, that was demonic at its purest form. Even unbelievers understand that. Where we are currently working in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Goma, where 4 million people, mostly women and children, have been killed and raped and their house has been burned down, to this day it's still happening. It, you've got to go there to understand and to experience and to feel and to see that territorial spirit. That spirit of incredible intimidation with one goal, to bring chaos, to kill, to destroy, to stand against God's order. Of course Satan knows what's coming at the end. He knows the word of God well. But he's got a determination to hurt the kingdom, to hurt the sons and daughters as much as he can. And we have got an obligation, a call. We've been given the weapons. We've been given the way to stand against this, to tie up the strong man. But we need to understand him. And prayer is so important in that. So we can see in the midst of this dark place in the Congo where the spirit of violence and intimidation and killing has been raging for two decades now. We started small communities under the radar and the kingdom of God is busy bursting in there. We tie that strong man up. We declare places, holy ground. Children by name, we rip them out of that strong man. Churches slowly by bringing the truth. We can see, we can see how they come away from being under the cover of that strong man. We are in a battle. You've got to know the strong man. You've got to know the territorial spirit in your area. Do not believe for a moment because you don't experience violence that he's not killing. I read when I was in San Francisco, I did a bit of research, and I read in some areas in San Francisco, the life expectancy of a prostitute is mid-30s, then she dies. There's a specific target group, the most vulnerable. Most of those prostitutes were young girls that fled from abuse homes, um, drunk parents, who knows, but they ended up in the streets in your city. They are held by a strong man. We need to stand. We need to fight. They belong to our Father. And His call on us is to bring the sons and the daughters home. I do it in dark Africa. 
you do it in San Francisco, you better know your enemy. Thank you, George. Always convicting. The strong man. No, Jesus spoke about the strong man in Matthew 24, 24. False Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, these false Christs, they are religious leaders, but they're also political leaders. If you heard what George was speaking about in Rwanda, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, this is about the realities of the darkness of prejudice and bigotry in places where people, when it comes to skin color, are exactly of the same color. Because the problem goes deeper than skin color. The problem is about the color of one's heart. And the color of one's heart is so dark. Apart from Christ, our default mode is to always isolate, separate, be bigoted and prejudiced. And so realize that whenever a popular leader comes along, a savior who's going to save the world from tyranny. And my friends, the danger is for us to think that that's some president of the United States or some leader of the world. We have, and the world has, and even the church has fallen into that idea and thinking for far too long. You can see these false Christs in political leaders and governments because you can tell they're far more than raw power or money. They desire worship. That's the thing about Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapters 1 through 4, he wanted people to worship him as a god. Think about not every ruler is like this, but those ones that want to be worshipped as a god. So you see that in Caesar, in Augustus Caesar, and Nero. You see that in Hitler, and Stalin, in the state. You see that in North Korea. See, there's a far greater power. When that happens, it's not just political power or economic power. It's spiritual power. There's an attempt to control the whole being. But Jesus said, this will happen, Matthew 24, 24. We shouldn't be surprised by this. He already told us this would happen. Peter said this in 1 Peter 2, 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. Now you have to understand, Peter is writing this to a persecuted church. He's writing this pretty much during the time of Nero, one of the worst dictators the world has ever known. He's telling this to a church under persecution. How can he say this? Because he knows that the government and a political leader is not going to rule and reign. God is sovereign over him. And only Jesus truly is, and it is possible to be under uh, the authority of an unjust dictatorial government and still worship Jesus rightly. The Christian always places their hope in Christ alone. And if we look to a system of government, a political party, an election, a supreme court, a country, a military force to save the world, we play right into the enemy's hands. Let me close with this. The same Peter, 
who wrote those words to the church, you know, he was the same Peter who believed that an unjust government needed to be overthrown. The disciples, they all believed that Jesus was a political messiah, a political savior. They thought he was a political leader. And they were under the rule of an oppressive Roman government as Jews. They were waiting in the promises of the Old Testament, the way they read the Old Testament, is that there's going to be a ruler one day who's going to overthrow the Roman government. And they saw Jesus as that person. So Peter says in Matthew 26, 35, listen to what he says. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. You know why he said that? Because they thought Jesus was Che Guevara, thought he was a revolutionary. He's going to come and overthrow this unjust government. And we also know what happened when Jesus was being arrested. You know what Peter did? He took out his sword. And most scholars think that in his he cut off the high priest's servant's ear. His name is Malchus. But most scholars think that he just missed. He tried to kill the high priest. He missed and cut off the ear of this. You know, he had he's not he's not a soldier, so he had really bad sword skills. Peter's answer to this injustice that he was facing was overthrow, revolution, get rid of the system, and everything will be okay. That sort of sounds similar, right, to our world today. Get power. Power changes everything. But Peter told Jesus, uh, Jesus told Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The most shocking thought to Peter was that it wouldn't be a revolution, a physical revolution. It would be a spiritual one that would penetrate his soul so deeply what he went from which is that this earthly power needed to be changed in order for righteousness to truly reign that would save israel suddenly that was changed satan was rooting him on in fact jesus says satan's trying to sift you like wheat peter satan is rooting him on to go fight Go These people are so unjust. You need to take your sword into your own hands and do whatever you can because this world is going to be corrupted and God is losing control. But Jesus makes it clear the sword needed to be put away. Instead, the cross needed to be taken out as the world's greatest power. And praise be to God, Peter finally gets it. You know, in that same passage... In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, where Peter says, Be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or supreme. In that same chapter, in 1 Peter 2, in verses 21 through 24, listen to what he says. This is right just only a few verses after what he said in verse 13, to be subject to all authorities. He says, For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed. Peter finally got it. 
the cross was the great power. It is to trust in him. It's to place your hope in Christ, to believe that he's sovereign even over governments, that the government, no matter what, even if they should kill us, they cannot destroy our souls. And so as the church, we need to go forth and proclaim Christ as the greatest power of all. The enemy thrives in power and fear and angst. He wants us to draw, draw our sword all the time. He wants us to, to use politics. Whether you're a capitalist or a socialist, he wants us as a church to be divided and angry by reading the news and confused by the president or the possibility of another president. But Jesus died so that we can be reconciled and free and joyous. That path breaks systems that are sinful down. It breaks down governments from Satan's power. But it begins with me and you. The sword we must draw is the sword of the Spirit, which tells us that Jesus is the only great power of the world. Let me pray for us. Father, you are Lord and King. Jesus, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that you are Lord. We are living in a time of much turmoil, but it's been like this for so long. Since sin entered into the world, we should not be surprised, but instead, all the more, we should be so thankful for the cross. The cross is our anthem, our banner, it is the picture and the means by which we have life. The cross is our sword. And with it, we extend grace and mercy. We live for reconciliation. We come bowing our hearts and trusting you that there is no system of government. There is no power earthly that can change the world except for the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we believe that with all of our hearts. May we not fall into the enemy schemes that tries to get us so riled up that we forget about our witness and our trust in Jesus as Lord and King. We serve one master, one creator. We thank you, Lord, for your wondrous promise. In Jesus' name we pray.